saying that we're here in the Great Lakes off of the Huron River at one of the great hydrographic systems of the world, the Great Lakes. And I've just come back from another place with a similar geography, namely Istanbul, where different water systems, different straits have been places of commercial interaction with militarism, looking historically at these two zones. So that's our location. And then I also want to say, state our time, which is the 14th of July, when the urban proletariat of Paris assaulted a 90-foot wall holding a prison and an armory in Paris, um, a major event in the revolution of those years of the 1790s, the Bastille. So it's the, that inaugurated a counter-revolution and a prison building program in both America, or I mean the USA, and the UK, or, or England in the 1790s. And this, so now this prison building program, as well as the commercial warfare, are structures that are with us still. So to me, um, even though I have to be careful with dates, there's a certain, not timelessness, but coevality between the 1790s and now. Not to mention, the racism, slavery, and conjunction of the plantation and the factory. So it's those three things, the prison, the plantation, the factory, which are, are, are present in our life today and a source of contradictions and of course of a tremendous struggle with Black Lives Matter, for instance, that any discussion about May Day or Stop Thief or other books I've written has to deal with, must deal with. The prison, the factory, the plantation, that's, that's the cotton industry and it's propelled by the steam engine. Uh, and the steam engine really nullifies craft labor and it nullifies uh, commons existence of agrarian workers. When I say nullifies, it puts an end to it, or it, it begins to subvert communities and commons. Um, this is what this is the job of the steam engine. But you know, we have to ask, what is a steam engine? The steam engine is a source of it's a heat engine, and it's the heat is provided by the sun, of course. But the sun's heat is stored. The sun's heat from four to five hundred million years ago is stored in coal. So here I'm doing a, like a concatenation of causal chain of the sun, coal, heat, steam, the factory, the plantation, the prison, 
here is a system that has deleterious, catastrophic effects on first the atmosphere, well first the body of the human being. I mean, I like to think that the 1790s or that era is the, the era of the cough. Here is when the human lungs become uh, polluted. Certainly but in the big cities like uh, London, but many forms of wheezing and sneezing and coughs is, is the pulmonary disease, uh, especially to TB, tuberculosis. So I, I see the lungs as part of nature, you could say, but it's part of the natural or biological self. In terms of the ruling class and the science of the ruling class in the 1790s is now thinking of nature as an external object, as a commodity, but also as a system. And that system is underground and it's after the coal um, beneath the surface to bring that coal, consume it, and then have it substitute for human or animal power, animal, human labor, the labors of your mother, the labors of our mothers, that is the labors of bringing to birth, uh, as well as the labors of weaving, spinning, carding, and so on, the, the different steps in textile manufacture. Hold it, I said weaving, spinning, and carding, but what about ginning? What about separating the seed from out of the cotton bowl? What about the transport of the cotton from the field to the levee? What about the transportation from the levee to the port and then across the ocean? This happened in the United States, the USA and the UK in the 1790s and it put an end to cotton manufacture in Egypt or the Ottoman Empire. It, it puts an end to the weaving of fine cottons in South Asia, in India. So those are changes in the natural world, changes in the atmosphere, changes in the agrarian life. And I'm just trying to relate them all, stressing nature or the green theme, but Apart from the Bastille, our conversation hasn't yet introduced the red theme vividly and powerfully enough at the same time of strikes, of riots, food riots, of going slow. These traditional methods of working class survival, but also the development of and thinking of alternatives to capitalism, alternatives to the destruction of the green. These also were present at that time in the 1790s and have last, last until now. So there's a certain repertoire of resistance that um, also belongs to this epoch of the last 200 years. In other words, I, I really I think to escape this epoch, to move into another one, the USA and the UK have served their historical purpose. 
Both of these are political entities of uh, ruling power that are directly responsible for the poisoning of the atmosphere. I mean, the amazing success of this play, Hamilton, is the perfect play for the, the multicultural neoliberal era, which, you know, the last few years in the USA. Because Hamilton was the man who advocated manufacturers. He advocated the steam engine, and that produces the lust for coal, the lust for further penetration into Mother Earth, where the coal miner, of course, is the center, or is, the, is at the face of this destructive, I would say, satanic power. The coal miner believes that he lives in the world of Satan. And that's part of the coal miners' folklore from the 1790s. And who's to say that the coal miner is wrong? Who, who among us have been in the mines and are familiar with the destruction, the heat, the poison? That's below. Yeah, well, I'm on something of a rant here. I was thinking of Newcastle upon Tyne, which perhaps I could come back to as the birthplace of Thomas Spence. But south of Newcastle, I was thinking of Durham and the coal fields of the Midlands of England. And the oldest miner's song goes like this. As me and my Mara was going to work, we met with a devil and it was dark. So that's the first and oldest song of meeting the devil underground. This, this song first appears in print in 1790, but of course it had been alive before that in the voices of, of coal miners. Otherwise, what do we know about the coal miner? Who has visited the Miners Museum in Maitwan, West Virginia? Who has gone into a coal mine? Who has spoken with the miners who now beg for work or get hooked onto different opioids in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky? who can talk to us and can answer this question in ways that perhaps you and I cannot. That is, men and women who have actual experience underground and now removing mountains, mountaintop removal. What did I read in today's bourgeois press, the New York Times, but that a new coal-powered station is erected every day in China. So we're looking for an economy, for a life, for power that is no longer from Lucifer's realm. When I say that, I'm referring to the destruction of our lungs again. I'm referring to this insidious poison that's directly related to climate change, that's directly related to the 
to the aridity that Naomi Klein was teaching us that has swept across so much of the middle latitudes of the earth. An aridity where people can no longer survive by growing grain. And thus that, together with war, has driven so many from Africa and from the Middle East to seek water, to seek livelihood elsewhere in the North. Again, this concatenation of causal events, coal, the atmosphere, climate change, aridity, famine. I began by referring to it as Luciferian or satanic, but it's capitalism, as any mining engineer could tell us, or as any person who is nursing and nurturing the children who are stuck or impaled or are searching to cross the waters into Europe or into any zone where they might find water and a life and a future. Yeah, that's the green world. You mentioned water, air, food, and shelter. And of course, homelessness, refugees, people without homes is worldwide catastrophe also that we can trace back to this civilization based on coal or oil. You mentioned rewilding. You know, we're here in Ann Arbor off of the River Huron, which flows to the Great Lakes near Detroit. And Detroit means in French the narrows, you know, one of the straits between the lakes and where coal and iron ore could meet human beings, producing the engines and then the automobiles, but exploiting former slaves, former subsistence workers of Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, the former slaves of Georgia to Mississippi, all came together in Detroit to produce the Chevys, the Fords. This is the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But then, when that red struggle in Detroit and the racist division producing one standard of life for one group of workers and then another in unstandard of life for waiting workers or the unemployed, when that came together with the great strikes of the 60s and then the, quote, municipal rebellions of 67, it produces what the sociologists called an underclass, but what we on Halloween call wilding. In other words, the wilding was not to go wild into quote nature, but to wild in the nature and the environment that we live in, which is an urban environment, and to burn it down. That was part of the Halloween celebrations of Detroit. Of course, criminalized. I'm not here advocating burning down your house, but we do notice as historians this different meaning of wilding. You know, it was the great anarchist Deruti of the Spanish Civil War who said, we are not afraid of destruction. In other words, anyone who has contemplated 
human life on this planet sees destruction, creative or otherwise. And rebuilding is always based on a previous destruction. And who is to say what's to last now? I mean, what we see, this asphalted ground with its phony lawns and its polluted air, its dangerous waters. Oh, he talked about water. We have, I didn't even mention Flint and the poison water here in the planet's largest concentration of fresh water. The red struggle has been to poison the waters of Flint, the home of the welfare state. Everyone knows it's where the sit-down strikes were that produced the UAW. Less well-known is that movement of the 30s produced the Social Security Act, produced the welfare, where the term welfare has an actual meaning about wellness. But of course, that popular comes from Reagan, and Reagan gets it from very conservative right-wing wordsmiths whose job, as we all know from reading George Orwell, is to take words and change their meaning into their opposites. And as you point out, that happened with welfare. There are large historical institutions producing how we use words. It's no accident that their first experience with tyranny is with their kindergarten or first grade teacher telling them what words they can use and what words they can't use. And in a punitive environment. Whew, I'm not sure I can back that up easily because I have such respect for uh, elementary school teachers and I also have such respect for, for language. Having said that though, and thinking more broadly, I know what you mean by this magic, but I also think we can deconstruct it. When the will is collectivized and is activized, is made into actions, then it is central to working class struggle. We are taught in our civilization is a matter of the individual, the individual will whether it's Schopenhauer or other philosophers or the self-help community uh, in the USA. It's always a kind of individual bootstrapping. But the social historian who examines human actions that have effects on one another and on the world, the will is a social creation. And I think uh, most kids see this right away, you know, generally, if not in school, certainly in sports. Their own will, their own desires are fortified and, and nurtured and strengthened by those of others. And so, I mean, walking down the street is one thing. Uh, marching down the street is another. Uh, doing it with 10 people is one thing. Doing it with 500 is another. As, as we have observed here in Ann Arbor in this last week, you know. So the excitement, the joy, the emotions, and the will is a collective or when it becomes powerful. And then it 
then you're dead right. It produces events that are totally unthought of. I mean, who would have possibly imagined that a wall 90 feet high in parts 30 feet thick, surrounded by a moat that's deep enough to drown in? Who would have thought that such an edifice, which had remained for centuries, could be brought down in the space of less than 24 hours. That's what we're celebrating on the 14th of July, 1789. This, this edifice of tyranny, this edifice of repression, and the action of people who are rewilding it in, in July 14th, 1789, has provided inspirations around the world for, revol for every urban revolution that has ever taken place. And it provides us inspiration now that the carceral archipelago, the huge military prison complex of the USA can be brought down in a twinkling. In a twinkling. These are the, I would say, miracles of history, but it's just as accurate to say these are our people's magic. People's magic. People's magic. Thank you.